Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Steve M., Luke A., Matt S., and Paul M. On the program today is a returning guest. Mr. Greg Hall is back on the program. Greg is the CEO and Managing Director of Alligator Energy, an Australian-focused uranium project developer and exploration company that is advancing its Samfire ISR uranium project in South Australia. The company also has a number of exploration grounds in South Australia and Northern Territories. Alligator Energy is listed on the Australian Securities Exchange under the symbol AGE and also on the US OTC markets under the symbol ALGEF. Greg, welcome back. It's been a while. How are you doing? Uh, very good, Andrew. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk to you and your listeners again. Absolutely, Greg. It's been a while. I think we haven't chatted, uh, at least for a podcast, for about two years, and so a lot's changed, of course. Uh, but why don't we kick it off here, Greg, with you giving us your thoughts on the current uranium market. And I don't mean, you know, the broad nuclear side of things, but really the key things of note in your head with respect to the fuel cycle issues, the status on term contracting, a lack of spot market activity so far this year, comparing, of course, to the previous two years, and things like supply sourcing that must come down the food chain into, of course, uh, our realm of the woods, uh, junior restarters and also junior developers. What do you say? The market's at, at, at an interesting point. I've been asked this question many times by people and, and investors in Australia who aren't as familiar with the, the business. And I, uh, I, I guess I give the, the answer like this. Uh, I'm... In my years, I haven't quite seen a market that's this broad and firm going forward in the context of demand. And that's that's good. We won't go into that in detail, but I think we're getting a breadth of demand, which which I think will help us in, in any setbacks going forward. And as I said to you earlier, I still have a concern that we have nuclear plants in a war zone. I think that's always a concern in terms of, of our industry and how the world might react in the event of something. But not, nonetheless, uh, the breadth of the, the planning for both large new reactors and SMRs is, is now getting astonishing. That gives that feel for where the business is going. Now, underpinning that, of course, is, has to be everything from fuel supply, fabrication, technology, construction, all the things that need to feed into that industry and make it happen. And that's where we're getting into the shortage realm. Everything from uranium ultimately right through to the skill sets needed to construct are going to be stretched. In terms of our market, uh, there's, a, there's a dominance of thinking around the nuclear fuel side with the EUP at the moment, and, and we naturally understand why that is. Um, and and certainly we've had a big change in terms of the Russian situation. Look, many of your listeners will remember that, that way back in the early 80s, the START treaty put in place by Reagan and his counterpart in Russia, and then Gorbachev reaffirmed that, was to initiate the downblending of ex-weapons-grade Russian material into nuclear fuel from about 93 onwards. 
and this was extremely well supported by the US and, and countries around the world. We, we all cheered about this because it took a lot of dangerous material potentially out of the market. And that was fantastic. From 93 to 2012, you had a feed into the US and other countries of downblended ex-military material. Uh, post 2012, uh, the Russians have been continuing that to some extent, but also then using their enrichment capacity and uranium sourced to, to maintain the feed of enriched material into US markets in particular, but also Europe uh, and, and other key areas. So we've now had a swing and that, that, that happens in politics. It happens in markets where uh, an area that we're well supported, but also have been very happy for me is saying, mm, now it's not right, the right thing to do for all sorts of reasons. So we're now seeing that swing um, and we have to get off the, the, um, the Russian stream, so to speak, going forward because it's looking very unstable. That creates the opportunity that we're seeing now. So we've seen that uh, the politics change first, and you and I talked about this before, about uh, the Biden administration and the previous Trump administration being supportive of nuclear. And having that bipartisan support has never occurred before. That, that initiated that. You've seen the change in Europe with now 11 or 12 countries forming a nuclear base whereby they're trying to influence the European Union to massively change its view on future nuclear. And you're seeing the construction occurring in the Middle East, in India, in China, and now probably 23 other countries initiating, uh, or more probably now, initiating potential new nuclear programs. So, so that, that shift in emphasis uh, has been massive. Now, in terms of uranium, um, yeah, there has been uh, really from I guess the first time we really saw the the, the uh, long-term contracting pickup was probably around 21, and then uh, it's really massively increased. And so I'm, I've been extremely pleased to see the amount of long-term contracting that's been put in place. And that's, that's really been a result of, of course, the absorption of the spot material out of the market. That's brought this on faster than it might have occurred. Uh, and so Sprott, Yellowcake Fund and others like that have certainly absorbed a good amount of spot material. And so the utilities are now making sure, well, we're going to need long-term supply, where are we going to go? And they'd started thinking like that, I'm sure, uh, quite a while ago, probably uh, early 21 at the, at the latest. But the time it takes to put it into place, uh, the time it takes to make action and the time it takes to um, work carefully to get material over a period of time to look at the suppliers, I think is valid. Now, your point, you've got the major producers uh, like Chemico, who are now locking away forward pounds in a big way. And, and you know, I've been very surprised, but it's been good to see the, the amount of material they've been putting into the market in the long term. And it really underpins their production base for a long period of time. Um, and then you have the restart groups, those that have got existing plants that have been on care and maintenance, that have been maintained well. And you know all the players, it's UR Energy, Peninsula, Encore, Energy Fuels, you're seeing UEC uh, looking at their projects in detail, uh, Paladin, of course, and, and other projects. And, and they are, have locked in some contracts to allow initial uptake. And I think this is a smart move. They're, they're, certainly, it looks like the pricing that's being obtained is. Uh, generally mostly market related, probably with a bit of underpinning of some base, but nonetheless, it's it's seeing it's there already in the in the sort of mid to high 50s, potentially in that sort of price. From 
our perspective, what this does is, exactly as you said, there's a flow down now to, to projects which will come on in the future. And um, we consider Samfire a project in ISR project in South Australia as one of those, but we've got some work to do. But there's many others. Others who are, will do restarts will also have additional projects they can bring on within two or three or four years. So it's going to broaden the base for uranium supply going forward. Um, I'm not worried about the amount of production coming on or about the amount of contracting being done. I think there is still a, a massive um, deficit in the market in the right time frame from sort of 27, 28 onwards that would suit us. Uh, I also believe that the breadth of spread of production, um, while it will be in a variety of areas, uh, there is still a favour, if you like, to, or a favouritism to, to look at the secure locations. Uh, and Australia is certainly a secure location in South Australia with five uranium mines previously approved and operating here in the past. Uh, it is certainly one that we think is a good destination. So I think the market is getting uh, ready and picking up now the uh, restarts. And, and now there'll be some opportunity in the near future for companies like us to start to put in some early conditional contracts for, for future supply 27 onwards, perhaps. Greg, that's great. I appreciate the uh, overview of how you see things here. Lots of stuff moving on. I think you and I both agree on this, that there is uh, a substantial shortfall of capable folks to bring those pounds out of the ground and get them to, over to the conversion facility. And that's going to be one of the biggest challenges I'm seeing here is the next tier of those restart folks, yes, there are some project-specific challenges, of course, but also that these volumes of these next tier of restarts are not substantial enough um, to even come close to the demand that's being jammed down the pipe. And so, you know, it's going to be interesting to see, of course, now you move on to your marginals, um, new project development, conventional projects coming could be very well that the marginal producer sets the rate. You know, we'll see if that holds true in the future here, but definitely there's a big, big question mark as to where all this material comes from. And then just people, you know, there's people that older looking to exit the sector. Wisdom transfer hasn't happened a lot, uh, in part due to capitalization problems. You know, there's a number of other issues as well and near term. So um, any comments there, Greg? And then I'd like to have you jump into the recent scoping study, which is, I think, the, the biggest recent highlight milestone at Alligator. And just talk about that scoping study and, of course, the key items that you think make it compelling for an economic project going forward here. Look, uh, your comments about the, the expertise in the industry are, are valid. Um, there's a lot of grey hairs like myself and others. Uh, but the good thing is, and I'm seeing this from what my awareness in a range of companies, we're bringing in younger people. So there's, there is a range of people who have worked at different locations in, in either uranium or in similar style chemistry situations. We've got two graduate geologists on board with us now in the production sense. We've, we've just got an experienced exploration geologist joined our other team already. So we've been recruiting, we're, we're recruiting now a, an experienced uranium ISR processing engineer. Um, and as soon as that person lands and has got the feet under the desk, um, we'll get a graduate process engineer under them. So I, I think as long as all of us are, are doing that work behind the scenes in terms of making sure we bring on new people to train, that, that will be good. It takes time, but um, it, it, it works well if you approach it. So I'm, I'm pleased that I hear other people are doing that, but we're certainly doing it as well. 
But yeah, um, I don't disagree that uh, it's a big task to restart a business when you've had a, a flat line for about 10 or more years. Uh, it occurred before that as well. Uh, and we have went the same through the same issues trying to get skilled people. But uh, I, I think this time there's there's a, there's enough enhancement going on that we'll work forward. But yeah, that that's really my comments on that. Yeah, definitely. I'd like to see more people take that lead too. I mean, you guys are probably there's a few. There's obviously a few that are making that effort. And then the other part, it gets capitalized, right? And and as the industry does well here and gets healthy again, there's going to be attraction, of course. So. Yeah. But yeah, I, I appreciate you pointing out that you guys are doing your part and I'll just classify you as a younger guy in this business, to be honest, Greg, although you have a lot of wisdom and have been in the sector a long time, you, you, you come across young and you still look young. So there you go. I'll accept the compliment. Thank you, Andrew. It's wonderful. <laughs> so tell us a bit about the scoping study. Yeah, look, um, we've, um, since we raised our capital in 21, we put 30 million Australian into the company. Um, and we really started our recruitment in a big way from that time onwards. And that was a big task to do. Uh, we brought in uh, some initial people with skill sets uh, for drilling and, and uranium experience, and that got our initial drilling underway. Um, certainly commenced our community engagement in a big way uh, around the Wyala region where our project is at, at Samfire. And we initiated then on, on the back of the first drilling a scoping study uh, around mid-22, which we finally put out in, in uh, March 23. And a couple of reasons for the delay. First of all, we, we had to get back on the ground to do some more drilling to increase the level of our resource. We, we, we totally changed the historical global resource at 100 ppm cutoff to a 250 ppm cutoff, which is more amenable to, to ISR. We um, had done a series of bent scale test work on cord samples we pulled out of the project at Blackbush. So the, it's the northern, pro, the northern deposit that I'm focusing on here because it's uh, larger and more certain and it's also um, current York code. And um, combining all that together with some additional drilling, we did an initial resource in October. We didn't have enough indicated in that to, to take scoping schedule forward we wanted. So we kept drilling and put out a, a next resource in March. And just to explain that, in, under Australian Stock Exchange rules, uh, no matter what sort of uh, forward-looking statements or schedule or studies you're doing, you need to have at least uh, three quarters of your production supported by an indicated resource rather than an inferred resource. So we needed to make sure that we had drilled enough and done enough detailed work uh, of both our um, uh, sampling, original sampling and the, and the detailed PFN analysis work we're doing to get that resource up to scratch. And then hence we could announce our scoping study. But the scoping study was still restricted a bit by the indicated resource. So we've got 80 million pounds at Blackbush at the moment with an indicated resource of 10 and a half. By the time you allow average recovery of ISR at 75% of the schedule, that meant you know, 1 million pound per annum over a 12 year life with a ramp up, ramp down was the, the schedule to do the scoping study on. But I wanna make sure that yourself and your listeners understand it is limited by that current indicated resource. We, we've been, uh, we commenced, recommenced drilling, sorry, in February, and we're going to be drilling right through to September. We've got one drill rig locked in for the whole period and a second drill rig that's there doing a bit of work on monitoring bores and things. So, so we're not distracting the main resource drilling rig now. We need to enhance this resource further. And, um, the scoping study, though, still gave some interesting results for us. We we're pleased to have it out. And one of the reasons we did it is we're about to spend a lot more money on this project. 
So before we do that, on behalf of shareholders, it really means you've got to show we've got a potential project here in a time frame that suits with a potential market that's going to be valid. And that's what the scoping study was about. So uh, production of 10 million pounds of uranium oxide over a period of 12 years, capital costs of, of 130 million Australian or around 100 million US, uh, and that includes 40% contingency and escalation factor. And I'll, I'll cover a bit of the, the, the reasons for the relatively cheap capital shortly. And all in sustaining cost of 30 US a pound. And that's, that's reasonable. We, we think uh, we were a bit worried it might be, seem a bit too cheap, but we've got some factors around our project which make that very uh, amenable. I'll talk about that. Um, let's call it a realistic NPV of 152 million Australian dollars um, after tax, but it still gives a good return nearly a 30% IR and 3.5 years payback in production. So the, the metrics looked good and, and there's a couple of good upsides for us here. First of all, talking about the capital and the operating costs. The capital costs are greatly influenced by a few key points uh, and, and the, the, the parameters around where our project sits and its geography, if you like. First of all, it's 20 kilometres south of a, a regional mining centre of Wyala. This has got significant iron ore mines near it, plus a steel mill, plus it services a lot of the northern mines of, of Olympic Dam and Oz Minerals projects. So a lot of uh, experienced companies and workforce there. So we're not fly and fly out. We don't have to build a camp. We don't have to build all of those isolated st structures that you normally have to do in Australia. Not only that, uh, we've got a, a power line that's only about 25 kilometres long, a freshwater line where you don't need a lot of freshwater, that's only about 20 kilometres long. So the sort of uh, project like this that would be further out in the middle of Australia, it might have 50 million of infrastructure, we've got 10. So it's a substantial saving in, in that opportunity. Um, the other aspect of that is that we've got this massive services and business support from these companies within the Wyala region. It's a town of 20,000 people and between Wyala, Port Augusta nearby, uh, and Port Piri, the other side of the Gulf where we are, they service those, those uh, not just the, the northern mines, but the, for the agricultural industry and, and other areas. So a really good base of support. So that's one of the reasons for our lower costs is, is being able to, to be not only that location, but also the attributes of the ore deposit. We're only 60 to 80 metres deep is the, the mineral sands or the compacted sands that we host in mineralisation. Now that's quite shallow. Um, so talking in feet, that's really you know, 180 to 250 feet sort of thing. So our drilling is much cheaper. The uh, a production well is cheaper. A water monitoring bore is cheaper. Um, we can choose to even close up the spacing if we want to in the future for better recoveries. We can take those sort of options. But nonetheless, that's one attribute. It's quite shallow. The second is it's, it's porosity and permeability. These are compacted sands, but they're quite clean. They, they really don't have a lot of fines, while there might be some very small clay beds in between, which might differentiate the roll fronts, and they're definitely roll fronts. Um, we, we're able to track them quite well now. So we've got a very good principal geologist working under Andrea Marsland-Smith, our chief COO, and together they understand this process intimately because they've both spent many, many years at um, Heathgate, which ran the Beverly Four Mile projects. In fact, um, I think I mentioned before, you know, uh, Andrea was uh, head of the discovery team for Four Mile. So there's some great attributes of the ore body that also make this quite, 
quite cheap. There are some attributes that are not so good. We've got hypersaline groundwater, and that means it's probably another 50% more salty than seawater. So while that doesn't impact the leaching, surprisingly, when you put down, just you circulate the groundwater, you dose it with a small amount of acid that's only two litres per 10,000 circulating, um, the uranium leaches well. Good porosity, good permeability, and all coffin iron just leaches well. But through an IX plant, what we need to do is to suppress some of that salinity so it, it doesn't take the spots on the, uh, the resins in the IX plant. So we, we, we're in our trial later this year, and I'll talk about it later, we're doing a reverse osmosis plant to reduce the salinity. We don't have to make fresh water. We just got to reduce it down to about 10 to 15,000 uh, salts. Um, still pretty salty. And that will mean that we're getting a reasonable loading in the IX plant. And that technology has been proven through ANSTO and through the test work that Boss Energy did previously. So um, we're allowing for that in the costs, and, but despite that, we're happy with where the, the, uh, the costs are. But some good upside. We are already drilling again. We know that instead of 18 million pound, we're going to have uh, at least 20 million plus in Blackbush, and, and we're, we're now already seeing some extension. We have some, some. Uh, we know that from just historical holes. We'll just be infilling and bringing that forward, and I think we'll be able to lift our indicator up to more than 15. Now, what that means is the major components in the scoping study are sized for 1.2 million pound, with a very small amount of capital will really lift the NPV up on the basis of better production. So, so that, that's a summary of where the scoping study is, um, but it's got some great opportunities as well. <laughs> Being relatively small, well, you know, 1.2 million pound is a starter project for ISR, there's no question. Beverly started at 1.2 million pound and now that plants up to over 4 million. Uh, many projects in the US start around that size. But um, it, well, the opportunity gives us in the Wyala region because the state government's putting a lot of money into that region for a hydrogen hub and there's a lot of renewable energy already there and some major renewable firms uh, into the location now investigating for the future. So with only a 1.2 to 1.5 megawatt power draw and maybe even doubling that only up to sort of two and a half, three, we could use renewable power. We could have uh, either grid or, or battery backup. We're 20 kilometres from a regional centre. We could use electric vehicles and uh, we're now investigating the trial of electric logistics trucks to, to not only bring in the material we need, but also to take out the containers of uranium, remembering we only produce two or three containers a month. So we've got a chance here to do what we call a near zero carbon generation mine. Now, until we get some electric drill rigs, that'll be difficult, but I know they're also being worked on. So we're now taking a position here, okay, an ISR mine with, with good standard practice, similar to other Australian ISRs, uh, getting that in place is one thing. But you imagine if we could have the uranium project that had an extremely low carbon footprint. Not only that, the one or 1.2 million pounds of uranium it sends out is going to offset probably about 10, 20% of Australia's carbon footprint in terms of generation capacity. So, so it's a really good opportunity to, to make a difference in the psyche of of the, the industry here in particular. So that's the detail of the, where the scoping study's at, the output from it, and, and also what we're, we're trying to do going forward. Um, and the next thing we're gonna have on the, the plan is the field recovery trial. Yeah, lots of good information, Greg, and I appreciate this. Uh, 
this closed infrastructure, which is very useful. Um, I like that, you know, you guys are going to make some efforts to reduce the carbon footprint of this project and, and you stop short of calling it carbon free. Bit of an argument there that could be made with respect to well the material produced that comes out of this could be viable that this project really produces carbon credits that are saleable as well but that's a whole different discussion about considering the yeah. density of the product uh, how it's used in a reactor and what this project actually means in terms of or any uranium producing project about you know carbon footprint uh, the potential for the the quality of the energy that's being brought out of there to be utilized what that means but I think you're right on track with the thinking there that, uh, you know, this project can have a, an amazing footprint and just human beings by themselves are not carbon free, of course. But uh, no. let's go ahead and touch on the field recovery trial in a moment. But I'm assuming that the project here at this point, Greg, is moving to feasibility study after the uh, field recovery trial. But just talk about the next step mm -hmm. on the economic study. I'm assuming it's going right to feasibility. And with that, you touched on some of the improvements that you expect to come down. But mm. uh, just talk about the next process on the economic study part. And do you think that if everything goes on schedule, that that feasibility study would be potentially out in late 24, early 25? What's your thoughts on time frame? Yeah, we put in our, uh, in our um, announcement in our presentation an estimated development timeline. Now, I'm, I'm always reluctant to put these things out when you're still involving the approval of a project, but nonetheless, we, we did it, and it's over about four and a half to five years. So we're, we're in year one, 2023, with the um, scoping study and field recovery trial. We are continuing to drill, as I mentioned, we'll be lifting our resource again, probably around the third quarter, September. And uh, we may even do an update on the scoping study with the higher production scenarios at that time, but we'll see, see whether we, we get to that. Field recovery trial in the last quarter of the year, uh, maybe winding down in January, so it's about a three to four month task. Those parameters from that field recovery trial plus event scale testing we've done, that's what's going to feed into a feasibility study. And you're right, Andrew, we're intending to commence that around second quarter in 24. And the, the aim of the feasibility is to not only get the finalised design of the project and, and economics uh, at a much closer bent, but um, uh, to also support the mine, mining lease approval process. And we're starting that actually in uh, the third quarter of this year. In fact, the approval work we've had to do for the field recovery trial and the retention lease that's needed to run that, uh, that's sort of covering off on about 50 to 60% of the initial work for the mining lease approval anyway, which has really given us a kickstart. But um, yeah, so the feasibility study through 24, into early 25, um, mining lease approval would probably take at least one and a half to two years, but then you need to do a, a full environmental operating document, and that takes out the full approval process to about three years. So while South Australia has got good experience in the regulatory authorities with ISR mining, it's got very good experience with uh, approvals of those mines, it's still, we believe, a three-year process. And while we've got a good kickstart with all the baseline work that was done by a predecessor owner of the company of the site plus ourselves now um, we are in a new area we're, we're 20 kilometers from a regional center yes it's a mining based center but but already we know this people aren't necessarily enamored with, a, with the uranium mine near them what does that mean what is it going to do so we initiated as soon as we acquired the project that early engagement and have been doing that work with a, a lot of the areas and regions around uh, the project 
So we think it will still take a good three years for approval. So the, the, the feasibility allows us a couple of other things, Andrew, and that is, well, we've already met, like, like many of our peers, with nuclear utilities, both US, European and others. We could quite easily initiate a couple of early conditional off-contracts if the market and pricing was right. What that does is it really underpins a couple of things. First of all, market agency arrangement that we have with Traxxas also includes the ability to draw on them in a number of ways. That might be feeding uranium into commissioning production. It might be doing deals together. But also uh, with their balance sheet, um, they're willing to put in some initial dollars into the project at the time we do some first offtake agreements, which are which are commercial. So therefore, we've got an interest in parallel of doing our feasibility study of getting some initial conditional offtake contracts in place. Um, so that really gives us some leverage then to to jump forward into some early financing discussions while we're still going through the approval process. So if we look at the key steps, then we're resource drilling right through initiate some early discussion on offtake contracts, but continue that, um, initiate the mining approval, start the bankable feasibility study, which will run most of 24 for nine months at least, then get more involved in additional offtake contracts and financing while we're going through the final approvals process. And, uh, and like many of our peers are doing now, commence the, the, the front end engineering design and other aspects before we anticipate, let's say, a financial investment decision around 26 so, you know early to mid 26 now if that's possible then um i think that timing is going to suit the market well for commissioning production in 27 late 27. yeah i appreciate you guys taking those early steps and really pre-planning if you will on a number of these things obviously environmental studies are going to take years of data probably that you guys got to start collecting on site so obviously getting outfitted on site for the environmental study is important uh, amongst the community engagement work and mm. you have so much right there whether it's between uh, the local community right there and then in adelaide i mean you guys got the engineering groups there you have a lot going with adelaide not being too far away either and then the potential for the offtake up front. I think that's an area that, that uh, certainly can be filled, and, and you guys are in a good position to do that, where you have that relationship with a trader in the market that has a balance sheet. And, you know, we're not seeing a lot of that come out directly from utilities right now, Greg, where utilities are promising upfront capital on an agreement. Um, I think a lot of them are taking the risk off approach and saying, well, sure, we'll mm -hmm. give you an agreement. Sure, we can agree to commercial terms, but there will be no upfront payments. And, you know, you guys uh, will be paid when it's at the converter. And of course, we've, we've seen that so far, but you guys are in a perfect position. I think that will change, by the way, but you guys yeah. are in a position to go to a third party and work that opportunity there. We do have a contract. You're a trader. This is great. Um, so I, I like that structure. That, that's well done on your behalf on that piece of it. How about the field recovery trial? Just talk about that mm -hmm. for a moment in terms of when you guys expect to start. I, I understand it could be early 24, but with this, you're here to verify the processing methodology. Do you see any challenges there, Greg, or is everything so far you guys are looking at the processing methodology and everything is looking very well, but of course, this is going to verify that everything is good with recoveries and all the other parts and pieces that go with this. Yeah, so the field recovery trial, which has been in the, the planning for a while and, and is in final design, basically will comprise a trial of up to three 
ISR rings, so an intractor was surrounded by between four to six injectors, three different locations of the Black Bush deposit, uh, linked into a, a very small pilot plant. So the pilot plant itself will be two 40-foot containers, basically. Uh, one will have the, the IX in it, and the other will have the reagents and mixes uh, with reagent storage outside. And our intent is to, to run that plant between the two and a half to five litres per second that we anticipate getting out of the rings. Uh, and right through to a looted uranium or elution coming off the IX. So in other words, the, the clean uranium solution coming out of the IX plant, which we then store in tanks. We don't need to take it through the final product. And, and in fact, it's better not to because that creates a whole different realm of, of approvals needed. Um, we'll certainly take some of that elution to Ansto in New South Wales to take through the final product in the, in the lab. And then we've got a final product for converter um, samples, etc. So it's three rings, a three to four months duration. We're anticipating starting around October, November and running it through for about three to four months. It's a trial of in situ leaching, of course, as, we, as I mentioned before, using the existing hypersaline groundwater. However, the intent is also to use an RO plant to reduce the salinity of that groundwater in the zone of the ring, push that, that reduced salinity water down into the, into the formation and let a plume of lower salinity water establish itself around and, and further out from the ring. So in essence, what you're doing is, is doing a temporary lower salinity plume around the ring. And then we recycle within the ring. You gradually might get some creepage of, of groundwater coming back in, but, but if we get the plume low enough, you, you recycle and extract within the ring, run it through the plant and, and do that task. So a number of, of things we think will work well that we want to test, and that is the, the leaching, for example, that we think will work well, and we'll get the, we've been quite conservative on a PLS or pregnant liquor solution grade out of the field. We've assumed 100 ppm. Um, Similar operations in Australia get 200 ppm. So we've been quite conservative, just to, to be careful about that. Um, we anticipate getting that okay. We're anticipating the, the drilling, of course, we're doing. We know the, the field wells and, and installation of those with the experienced driller we have should be fine. Um, but as I said, the, you know, developing the, the RO plants work well because in Australia we've got so much saline water underground that, that all of our reverse osmosis plant manufacturers are used to dealing with high salinity water. So we can reduce the low salinity water. It's now about how can we make it work in the hydrogeology, making sure we get that lower salinity plume. Now, make no mistake, the IX plant will still work in high salinity, but it'll work at a lower rate. So what we're trying to do is to, to show that we can get the salinity level, which will be an efficient process through IX. Um, and then the IX resins themselves, while there's been a good amount of test work done at bench scale, both with us and with Boss Energy, these uh, salt, newer salt tolerant IX resins, um, this will be the first time they'll be used in a, a let's sort of a larger pilot plant. And then of course, Boss, as they start to commission, are using it in a full cell plant. So, so we're at uh, a bit of the cutting edge of the new salt tolerant resins, but everything around them shows that they've been working fine. Yeah, so a number of things to test. There will be some challenges. There is always challenges, and any of your technical listeners who are technical people know that. But that's the reason you do a pilot trial. I'm only aware of one ISR mine that started in the world without a pilot trial, and I wish they had it. So uh, it's a very, very valuable thing to do. And the parameters out of it will certainly feed into to the feasibility. We have the flexibility in this arrangement we're designing to trial different things. We can trial, for example, higher salinity 
uh, IX, we can trial a lower salinity IX. We can trial uh, different feed streams. You know, we can mixed feed streams if we wish. So there, there's different ways we can set up and do different trials, which is what you want to be able to do. In this. So we're trying to make it reasonably flexible. That comes with a cost, but we think it's well worthwhile. Looking forward to seeing what results start coming out of that. And early 4Q is when you guys will get started out there? Uh, early fourth quarter this year. Fourth quarter, that's correct, yes. Yeah. Perfect. So I know we already covered a little bit on the uh, the resource upgrade work that's going on now. But talk further about just, you know, obviously the intention to, to raise the resource a bit here. But let's talk about further upside at the project. And I'd like to just get your comments on, you know, what else Samfire offers. And with that, I'd like to just include the Plumbush deposit nearby and the potential yeah. for that to become a satellite operation in the future under an expansion scenario. Talk about that and the further upside. Well, look, we're necessarily focusing on Black Horse for a number of reasons. One, it's the most advanced uh, project in terms of the resource. Uh, it's the, it's had the most drilling in it out of, out of nearly 800 holes that our predecessor company drilled. Uh, at least 650, were in the Blackbush. Along with the original data that the USA had in the past, we've added to it with ground gravity. And uh, as your listeners will see in our scoping study presentation on slide 11, We've now been able to outline essentially where the potential channels are, not only around Blackbush slightly to the north, and but also to the south, at least five kilometres down to where Plumbush is, and where we're planning to get on the ground south of Plumbush because those channels will extend also below that. Now, uh, while Plumbush has been found, it was quite wide space drilling down there, and including between Blackbush Plumbush. So, we think there's potential all the way through there. I, I think I point out that there's a, a range of ISR uranium fields in the world. I, I certainly know from the Beverly Four Mile case that you, Beverly started with a 15 million pound resource, 1.2 million pound plant, and uh, it's now with discovery of Four Mile plus these Beverly uh, East extensions uh, has picked up dramatically and they're going much bigger. So you always, if you've got the right settings, you can always find more resource. That's our view with the right settings. Now we see the right settings in the, the extensions to the south. So Plumbush will definitely be a target for us to go. We know there's some potential for a small resource there, but actually just the channels to the north of Blackbush, the west of Blackbush, the east of Blackbush, and to the south of Blackbush will be probably some of our first uh, expansion exploration as well. And so uh, already we're finding um, to the west, we, we, we did our first a very small channel to the west, but it had our highest grade. It had a 2% intersection in it. Um, to the north of uh, Blackbush West, uh, we're already seeing a step out and continuation with an infill drilling. And we did our first drilling in the east of Blackbush in, uh, in this round, and we're about to put some results out in the coming weeks around that. Now, it's infill drilling, so you expect to get results there, so it's nothing new. But it's just good to keep the market informed that we are seeing what we anticipate. So yeah, we are very, very confident with, let's call it some significant exploration upside to the south. And now our plan is not to distract ourselves too much this year, but our plan is to start that southern extension work uh, later next year. Let's 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 get a, a, an additional resource upgrade done at Blackbush, um, get the field recovery trial planned and put in place. We're even going to stop resource drilling while the field recovery team is in place so we can use our experienced um, field team to help operate the plant. Because 
you know, while we're well cashed up, and we'll talk about that later, um, we still are a small company, so you've, you can't do everything at once. You've got to really do a stepwise through and make sure you're achieving things on the way. But that footprint that we have and shown on that map is uh, substantial for future work. Yeah, very well. And definitely there's some work to be done there. And it's always a, a juggling act with respect to getting as much value as possible to also raise the market cap of the company and move these things forward. And of course, you know, discovery also can be quite exciting too. And you want to allocate more capital to follow up. Let's switch gears here, Greg, and talk briefly about reclamation. Reclamation in Australia for an ISR project is going to be significantly different than a reclamation of a project, say, in the U.S. Um, generally, from a capital standpoint, obviously, the process is probably going to be similar. But talk just briefly about reclamation on this project and, and really the commitments after closure of the mine. Well, look, that, it's a very valid point because there's, there's good experience here in how this works in particular. So that's distinct in particular from the Wyoming mines, which I'm more familiar with, which has quite fresh water. Uh, the ISR projects, uh, Beverly, Honeymoon, Four Mile and Samphire are all salt water, brackish water, you know, from about five to eight ton part per million salts at Beverly up to um, you know, 10 to 12 at Honeymoon and up to 30 to 40,000 for ourselves. The good thing about that is the requirement is you need to ensure that those groundwaters return to their previous static state, if you like, their previous state. Um, the beauty of that is is um, the work that we've done, uh, which is which has been done by similar operations, is engaging a company which under, uh, with our hydrogeologic models and our detailed water chemistry from sampled all over, and then do predictive flows and predictive operations. And the example of the work we've had done by the group shows that in these rings um, that will be um, operating both in the trial and in production, the groundwater generally in the area, what is hypersaline, it moves somewhere between one to four metres per year, uh, slightly to the east, so a very slight down gradient. Now, we obviously temporarily interrupt that while we recycle and recirculate the water to extract uranium. But then uh, once you finish that recirculation, any residual acid, of course you recirculate to remove the acid, you clean, just do clean groundwater for a while, but you have residual acid. And what we've shown is any residual acid is fully neutralised within anywhere between 30 to 40 metres, uh, maximum 50. Even at um, Beverly, where they have a higher groundwater flow, they, they have full neutralisation within 100 or 150 metres. And so when you seek your approval for a project like this, you have to um, get that study work done and put in a ring of monitoring bores, which then become your boundary. You are not allowed to have any long-term impact on the groundwater or any impact on the groundwater at those monitoring bores. And in our case, those monitoring bores are about 150 metres away from our edge of our production fields. So the good thing about it is we are both allowed in Australia to use natural ground neutralisation for the groundwater to return to its previous state. And it's been proven to effectively work at the rehabilitated areas around Beverly. That's a big plus for us because we that means we have a, a, a much less cost. In fact, the biggest cost is the ring of monitoring holes we're putting in for our field recovery trial is probably about one and a half million dollars Australian. That'll actually suffice for the first six years of production as well, which is good. But nonetheless, that's a fair cost. So that's the fair cost for, for putting that in. But the, um, the groundwater rehabilitation at the end uh, is usually only using natural neutralisation. 
you, you do circulate some clean, clean groundwater just to clean as in natural groundwater to, to help that, but nonetheless, it's only natural neutralization. On the surface, in fact, we've, we've been doing a massive amount of work on this already. Um, this area is pastoral country, it's sheep grazing. It's, it's already been somewhat denuded, probably the, the, the amount of bush load on here is mostly, if anyone looks at our photographs, you'll see most of the trees that were there have gone, they're quite old trees. Each one of those small trees you see in the distance is a thousand years old because it's slow growing. Um, we are now rehabilitating our drilling sites to double the bush density that's existing there now. So back to more like it was originally. And we've actually won a, a Premier's commendation here in the state for the work we've been doing there. And, and our environmental manager comes from this area of South Australia. He knows the country well. And we're working with the pastoralists very closely to show how we can actually improve the density of bush post mining from what was there. Um, and that seems to be working quite well. Now we are going to have a temporary impact on the surface, but we don't have to clear everything. Uh, you're running lines, um, you're putting in, you know, these are pregnant liquor solution lines across the bush, usually together. Um, you have leak detection, pressure detection, all of those things on them. A, a biggest hazard for us environmentally on the surface is if we get a saline groundwater leak. It's not much to do with any of the, the mild acid or solution or anything that's in it, or even the uranium, it's very low grade uranium. It's the salinity, which is the issue for us on the surface. So we really have to manage our surface water flows well to make sure we don't get any large saline water leaks. Otherwise, we're going to have to reclaim them and, and do them properly. Um, so the, we allow for that. We, uh, we in Australia, under the South Australian rules, we have to put a bond down for our drilling. We've just increased our bond for the amount of drilling we're doing. We have to put a bond down for the field recovery trial so that the government has access to funds to fully reclaim this if we go belly up. And we have to put a full bond down for production for the same vein. And you're allowed to reclaim that bond as you reclaim the, uh, the sites that you're working on. But, but certainly, all of that work is done up front. We've done all of that pre-estimative work in the scoping study, and we'll keep working on that going forward. Greg, I appreciate you covering off that process. Very good, reasonable process, which uh, which is always good to see that the folks are being reasonable, which is uh, you know not always the case these days. With that, just on Samfire one more time before we move on to some other topics here, but just talk, come back to sustainability and community efforts, um, specifically the community efforts portion. Talk about the work being done on this front, Greg, uh, with the local community around Samfire to keep good partners in the project uh, development and also on the exploration effort. This is an area because of my, uh, how shall I call it, um, age in the industry <laughs> and time in the industry. Um, anyone who's been in the Iranian business uh, like this, you have been dealing with politics, with community, with indigenous interests, with a range of people who just don't necessarily want uranium mining, like uranium mining, don't like nuclear power, all of those. So it means that you've been focused on this all your career, no matter what. The good thing we're seeing is there is a substantial shift in Australia, as there is in other parts of the world, on people's view of nuclear, and in particular on their view of uranium mining. I mean, when the Olympic Dam started up, you know, I first got involved in the project Olympic Dam in 1981 and commenced production in 87, 88. Um, yeah, there was a massive political movement against that mine commencing. 
and uh, people saying it's going to be the equivalent of this many nuclear bombs and all this and all this, and that there'd be 4,000 people a year are going to come down with radiation-related cancers. Well, in, in 30 years of operation, guess what? <laughs> There's none. Um, it's a very low-grade uranium mine by comparison, although it's underground. You've got to be careful about those. Um, but it has managed its process well. The same at Beverly, uh, the same at Ranger in the Northern Territory, and, and I've worked at but both the Olympic Dam and this management ranger. So essentially, the proof's been in the pudding. We've seen that the public view has now shifted a bit. So, well, uranium mines is bad. Surely there would have been all these deaths, and there's not. So certainly that, that has shifted somewhat. There is still a lot of NIMBY, as there is everywhere else in, in Western countries in particular, not in my backyard. Um, and people get worried and say, look, I'm fine with the uranium mine up there, but I don't really want it next to me. So we are already going through those things and talking to people about them. And nothing talks more strongly about it than having your employees talk to the public about where they've worked before in uranium mines, how they've worked and things, because your employees are the frontline people who are exposed to, to the business and the industry. So we, we use our employees a lot in, in those discussions. In terms of the more wider practice, Alligator Energy's been involved in ESG in practice, we call it. You know, not focusing on ESG per se, but just focusing on doing the right thing. We've had more than 40 Indigenous employees now up in Arnhem Land. We're currently using an Indigenous-owned drill company up there. We started engaging with Indigenous groups at the Big Lake project even before we'd set foot on the ground and to, to work around that. And we started engaging with the people directly impacted by Samfire just as we we're about to announce the in June 2020, we were just about to announce the acquisition. The day before, I made sure I briefed the mayor of Wyala Council, the CEO of the council, the local state member, the local federal member, uh, the key company personnel there, and the government heads, of course, in, in Adelaide and the minister's office. Uh, I've got a minister for mine. So you really need to make sure people aren't surprised, that they're fully informed and they know what you're doing and know what's going on. And, and all modern companies do this now, but it's something that's easy to forget and let slip. If, if people aren't informed by you, they're going to be informed by someone who's not informed. So we really focus on making sure that we keep people informed. We've had in December last year, January this year, uh, public presentations up in Wyala region, uh, drop-in centres. We've had massive number of one-on-ones with both our parcelists and We've met with the Indigenous group that we have an agreement with already. And, and so we're continuing that work in a much, much bigger way. We've recently put on a new site coordinator who's an who lives at Wyala. We now have three or four Wyala-based employees. And, um, and, and he is now making sure we keep engaged with the community in a much bigger way. So it's um, even four and a half years before production, we're very, very much engaged in that practice. It's a very critical piece of it, Greg, and it sounds like you guys are doing a pretty good job of, again, planning well in advance to what you guys plan to do there and, you know, establishing the community as a real partner, which a lot of these companies get too lazy to do. And that's why there's so many failures on that front, of course, as well. But uh, let's talk about expiration plans. We already covered Samfire, but substantial expiration grounds, both at Big Lake and also Alligator Rivers. These areas uh, can be quite substantial, specifically Alligator Rivers area. Um, but also Big Lake too. You know, what are the plans on exploration work, say, over the next 12 to 18 months 
you know, as Samfire, of course, goes through this kind of advancement and permitting process trough, if you will, Greg, cover off really the plans for exploration, because I, I suspect you guys, of course, uh, to keep things moving along while some of these processes are with the regulators, that you guys will be working on some other projects in the meantime to provide that exploration upside. So just talk about that and some of the plans there. No, well, we're cert we certainly will be doing uh, exploration work. I mean, we, we think that despite <laughs> despite your, your word trough, we think Samfire will have continuous advancing news going forward. We've been conservative enough to make sure that we're going to pick, keep advancing news flow. But nonetheless, you're right about the exploration. There's some, we have a valid view within our board and within our team, and that is that um, two things. Whenever there's a boom in uranium prices, nuclear power like there is now, uh, a lot of us have been in the industry a long time. Go grab all the old projects, dust them off, put a bit of lipstick and make sure, yeah, we've got a project we're going to go forward. Now, that's good. We've just done that with Samfire and we, we've determined well before we acquired it that it was a potentially realistic project. But nonetheless, we like the fact of new discoveries. Um, you've seen that through Athabasca. You've seen it through some, some locations in Africa. And new discoveries give your shareholders a massive boost in potential value. There's nothing better than it. Um, we've been in Alligator Rivers a long time, and, and if uh, for those listeners have got a, a presentation on, on slide 18, it's got the map of the Alligator Rivers tenements. We've mainly been working on the southern or bottom series of tenements around Tin Can Creek and, and Beatrice. And a lot of these we picked up from Cameco or other players. Uh, a small resource of caramel, six and a half million pound. We don't think that's expandable at the moment, but we're going to have another look at that in the future. But in general, that area down there is overlain by uh, barren sandstone, anywhere two to 300 metres thick. And the, and the dark orange on that diagram shows the extent of that sandstone. Now, what we moved to, and we, we started working on the Narbalek North approval process and, and tenement approval process probably four or five years ago. And so to the, to, to the top of that picture, we have what's called, called the Narbalek North project. It's to the north of the old Narbalek mine, hence the name. It's a series of 11 tenements it's got very little sandstone cover. It's got a weathering profile. Now, what we really need to do, because if, if there's no uranium at the surface, you don't get a radiation signature. You've really got to understand the geology under this. All of these locations have the potential for the same geology as, as Ranger or Jabaluka. The kale formation linking with Archean, and you get that intersection, you get structures coming up that bring fluids up, you can get the formation of high-grade deposits. And high-grade in, in Alligator Rivers can be anywhere from 0.5 to 1.5%, that sort of grade. It's still the best grade in Australia. So the area marked out in the red boxes in that diagram are the focused areas that we started on last year. We were late getting on the ground because we hadn't been able to get in this area since the tenements were granted in early 20 and we did the Indigenous agreement. And that's because of COVID. This is Aboriginal owned land. It's, it's Aboriginal freehold land essentially. So you need to have an agreement and engagement with the traditional owners to come on the land. Um, because of the concerns around especially older people there, they didn't want people coming onto their land for some time. So we managed to get back on there. We, we established a, now a temporary camp because it's too far away from our main camp. We did an initial six weeks of work, which included some shallow drilling. We're about to get on the ground there in late May and go right through to October this year. And that's going to mainly be, again, stratigraphic drilling, Drilling down with cheap drilling, air core, rab drilling to get an idea of the underlying geology. Uh, maybe picking up some scent of some mineralisation, but that's not the main aim here. The main aim is you need to understand the geology, the structures. We've got 
good gravity surveys over this. We've got some historical EM. We've also going to do an IP survey over this this year. So this area of Narvalik North is now our, our main focus in Alligator Rivers. And you know, we're spending a couple of million up there at least to, to make sure we put some get some good effort. And even the results from last year are now starting to look good. We'll have an announcement out soon about um, the geological results, and I emphasise the stratigraphic geological results, but they're really starting to think we, we put women in the right direction. One of our focus areas is on the southern area of our tenement there, where the U40 prospect sits on the company just to the south. That prospect is 6.8 metres at 6.7% uranium. Now, that's a very unusual high grade, and we want to follow that up across the adjacent boundary in our ground. So that's an area we'll be focusing on this year. Now, Big Lake, we have now engaged and put in place a full Indigenous agreement, which has got final legal edits in it, and uh, those final legal edits are the things that can knock it down. But all the key terms are set, including uh, a lot of employment terms to engage Indigenous people to work with us up there. Um, we've had we employed a geologist who's not a uranium geologist, but he's a sedimentary basin and structural geo. And and to let your listeners know that. The, the area where Big Lake is, it lies over one of the biggest inland hydrocarbon basins in Australia, the Cooper Basin. It's been producing oil and gas since the late 50s, early 60s, and it's still a big oil and gas producer. In general, some of the biggest ISR uranium fields in the world are associated with hydrocarbon basins. Kazakhstan is oil and gas. Wyoming is gas and coal. Texas is oil and gas. Only one company ever has drilled 10 years ago, some short holes into the sediments above this basin to see whether there's uranium. They found some. Not extensive, not high grade, but there's uranium present. So we have been doing work with our senior geologist on all the available seismic information that's from the oil and gas companies, which is public, so it's free. We've been doing a huge amount of work turning that seismic information up towards the sediments. But the clincher for us, and the reason where they're looking is the overlying sediments in this basin area the Namba Formation, the Air Formation, and the Upper Cretaceous are all the sediments that three to four hundred kilometres south contain the Beverly Mine, the Four Mile Deposit, and the Honeymoon Deposit. So they're exactly the same sediments. There's hot granites in the area. Is there a formation? Is there traps where this uranium can be formed? We are going to have a good look. We think there is the opportunity for it. If there is the opportunity in one location for a trap of uranium, then you've got the opportunity for a new field. So this to us is, is breakthrough stuff. And it's taken a while to get on the ground. COVID interrupted that, of course. But we are going to be on the ground with our first stratigraphic drilling program this year. And I'm looking forward to seeing some of the results come out of both of these and really get some time and, and money put into some holes there and some work done. With respect to the deposit types, Greg, you covered that off. and. Just talk about, you know, we've got two different regions here, completely different. Obviously, mm -hmm. Big Lake is, is probably more geared towards ISR targets. But yeah. then things in Alligator Rivers, for example, these things can get really big. People just understand and know some of the existing deposits that exist there today. Talk about maybe the potential here, or maybe the size uh, in yeah. these regions. I mean, uh, you know, obviously, there are two different regions. One's conventional, one's more ISR, but these things can get really big. I'm not saying that that's what's going to happen here, but what I'm saying is, is, you know, you can put together a lot of pounds really quickly. Yeah, look, the Alligator Rivers area, our real target there to be able to achieve an effective economic mine would be 50 million pound deposit. 
And there's a number of reasons for that. One, it's reasonably isolated. So you, you're going to have to have a good size deposit to pay for infrastructure. That's the first. The second is you need a good grade there. So you need a, a, a solid grade. You know, Ranger started at around sort of 0.3 to 0.4%. Jabaluka, its global grade is 0.5%. So you need that sort of grade or higher to be able to work it effectively. My feel there is that um, while you could develop an open pit, they've been developed before, it is a very tropical area with a lot of rainfall. So you run into the water management problems that of course Ranger's had all through its life. And I had first-hand experience with them in the 90s when I was there four or five years. Um, I think I would love to find anywhere from 25 to 50 million pound in an underground operation, preferably 50 million pound, in an underground operation that could make small and tight, maybe even look at a potential for a small high grade process plant underground and look at the, the potential of even tailings deposition underground. So the sort of things that have been looked at in, in some of the more modern thinking now in mines, I know in Papua New Guinea with this high rainfall, um, we've been looking at this even for a potential nickel cobalt in the, in the Italian foothills where we've got our project Piedmont. I know NextGen's having a look at this and I know at least two other companies are looking at this fully encapsulated underground mining where all you do is ring up clean waste rock if you need to and sell it as aggregate and then final product. Now, it's very possible that that, that could work up in a place like Arnhem Land. So um, we think you need at least 50 million pound to make something like this economic. Um, you've seen the 24 million pound Angularly deposit, which now Deep Yellow have, which they're still working on. Uh, look, if you had a couple of them, I think you've got a good gameplay. So, I think that's what you need up there. Um, and uh, if that comes off, then again, you've got probably a 20 to 30 year mine. Ranger was 40 years. So we're keen on doing that. And look, the other thing I'll mention, which is partly in, in Alligator Rivers area and, and Big Lake and also at Piedmont, we've started looking, we've got some consultants engaged, starting to look at what else might be on our tenements. Because not only are we keen on the uranium going forward, and we're well advanced in that business and taking that forward, in fact, still looking for other opportunities. But we haven't had a decent look at what other minerals are potentially on these tenements, in particular in, in Arnhem Land, where you've got a massive weathering profile with deeper granites. If you've got a, the right sort of granites, the right sort of clay weathering profile, then you've got potential for a range of minerals that could be interested on our energy minerals banner, shall we call it. So we are looking at that. We're also interested to see what could be contained within the condensates in Big Lake Uranium. We've got the mineral rights in that area, so we're going to have a careful look at what else could be in that region as well. And of course, while it's not a primary focus for us, the, the Nickel, Cobalt and Piedmont, we've just done a ground EM work last year, and we're doing some more ground truthing over that sort of interesting signal we found there. So uh, you, for shareholders' value, you don't need to spend a lot of time and money but you can see what else is there that either you could be interested in or someone else could be interested in. So we're doing that work as well. Excellent. I appreciate the the context around some of the uh, the potential up there, elephant territory for Australia, if you will. Let's move on to uh, capital structure here, Greg, and then just a few more things, and we'll wrap up here. Um, mm -hmm. Talk about the cash on hand here and the runway that gives you in terms of the need to you know finance most likely sometime next year current shares outstanding, and of course, the ownership levels of management and key insiders. 
Well, look, um, our capital structure certainly is interesting from uh, from listeners in the US in particular when they see 3.3 billion shares at, at 3.5 cents or whatever we are. Um, they think, why the hell is this going on? Well, of course, we've come from a very small base. We were at one stage three to between three and eight million market cap company. Uh, once we acquired Samfire and the market took, uh, took off, we went to well over 200 million. And we're, we're back down to some more reasonable level, let's say, as befitting the status of our projects. But but certainly we think we can improve that value in the, in the near years. Um, the advantage that capital structure gives is a lot of liquidity. So in our capital raising in 21, we brought in some quite significant funds and institutions. Um, we picked up with the market pickup, um, you know, there's a rush into uranium stocks. Uh, many of those guys took profits. We're fine with that. And they're able to take profits because we've got a lot of liquidity. So, so we're not frightened of that liquidity and, and that structure. It's not the structure you need for a future potential operation, but it, it's not quite the right time yet to do something about that. And as I've said to you before, I think, Andrew, that the time to do something about that would be on the back of a significant deal or announcement of some type. Um, Cash-wise, we're uh, sitting at, I think we just put our quarterly out at just over 20 million. So we've been reasonably frugal with our cash uh, since 21 through to now, and that's because we've just only been recruiting and getting people on the ground and doing things. We are going to spend more now, and that's one of the reasons for getting the scoping study out there so we know we're spending on valid value. Um, the, the field recovery trial itself is going to cost about $6 million, uh, going forward. We've got ongoing corporate costs of you know, $1.5, $1.7 million with the size company we are and, the, and the, the, the team. We have a team, not all full-time, uh, but a team of some full-time, some part-time, some consultants of around 20. And that's about the right size for us at the moment with the work we're doing. And we're going to be doing, you know, we, we spent about two and a half million in, in drilling at Samfire. Uh, we spent about two or two and a half up at Alligator Rivers and a much lesser amount at Big Lake. Uh, so we're reasonably well-funded, as you suggest, through into next year at whatever time frame. Having said that, of course, um, at the right time in the market, if there's interest and opportunity, uh, a board like ours and any small company will always take an opportunity to to add more cash to the kitty if it's if it's uh, if the opportunity's there. But we think we'll have the news flow to match. Uh, an updated resource at Samfire, the, the field recovery trial commencing and getting the results, uh, kicking off the feasibility study, the expiration out of our projects. We've got a continuous news flow through the next 18 months, two years. I think to help support that. Um, currently, board and and uh, senior management are around just under three percent of the company, so not not large. But um, it's been larger in the past when we were smaller. Um, we still have um, the McCallum Group, led by Peter McIntyre. They've they've put all their shares out in species to their key key owners, and so they've they've still got holdings. I've been over to see those key guys. We've had um, funds in us up to four point nine percent. Um, and then drop down again. So we don't have any single major player. We're fine with that at the current time. We've got 8,000 shareholders. We have a lot of retail. And at our share price, of course, we have a lot of day traders. But the, the, the issue, the key outcome of, of this is we're well-funded to achieve the work we want to do. We've already added value, um, but largely a company of our size and with the, the uh, timeline of production still four and a half years, we're going to be driven by market and the view of the Iranian market and business to a large extent. Uh, but I think we'll be adding value over these next one or two years that will, will help us go along.
the capital structure piece of it, you know, it's it's always interesting how how people get irritated about uh, a large amount of shares outstanding, especially if it's an Aussie junior. At the end of the day, the math's still the math, and it's like having you know a hundred ones in your pockets or you know one hundred dollar bill in your pocket. At the end of the day, it's the yeah. same thing. Um, so people always get a little bit odd with that. I mean, there are certain things with share price thresholds and different things you might look at if you're looking at listings right. or certain financings, etc. Yeah. But you know, it's always a little bit silly when people get irritated and, you know, well, let's be honest, some of these uh, stocks, including alligator for a period of time was a substantial performer and, and the Aussie stocks on uh, the uranium sector do have quite a bit of performance behind them. It's interesting as we go through the cycle here and we look at this, which brings me just to this piece. You know, we talked about the overvalued nature of the equity most likely happened, uh, you know, during that good run from 2020 on the back of the, the good M&A acquisition uh, of Samfire which you did at a great price and, and obviously got rewarded for that in the share price. But then in late 2021, uh, you know, on the back of the uranium price and, and the equity hype there for a little while, it did get overvalued and I think it was well north of 300 million uh, market mm -hmm. cap. And now we're about 72% by my database off the high currently. And so I just wanted to maybe get, have you address that. And obviously, you know, we're going through a stage in the market where sentiment's bad and depending on what equities we're talking about, but let's talk about juniors. You know, the juniors on on average um, is somewhere around 57 to 60% off their highs. Mm -hmm. Just talk about that and, and what you think, you know, in the next year, what milestones and what work you think will start to move that share price back up to maybe an area that you and I see as yeah. a reasonable value. Yeah, look, I, I agree. We, we've, we've dropped uh, more than some of our peers. Um, we do know we had some fun selling from about October, November last year, right over Christmas through to early this year. So that was keeping the price static. And we know that's all gone now. And so um, there's not any excess selling on us anymore, which is valuable. That's good. But I think you're seeing the, the value of, of Uranium players sort of be now in line with where they are according to their production profile and their cost of production. So uh, you, people who are getting close to production and you look at the, the market cap of BOSS, uh, that's right up there. So they're um, they're funded, they're close to production, and it's right up there. You've got other projects which are restarting, and in the next one or two years, will be restarting production up. They're they've moved up there. We're we've been we've, we've been honest with our time frame. Um, we know how long it will take a project to be uh, started from scratch, which this one is, and we've put it out there. But we're also you know currently reasonably funded to take those first few key steps, which are going to advance it, not only to enhance the the, uh, the study uh, with, an, with a larger resource and with very little capital adding on will probably lift the NPV by somewhere between 30 to 50%, but also then to advance the approvals process, both the technical work and the approvals to, to take these steps into to feasibility. So I think we've got the, the game plan right to advance those knowledge and, um, and make sure that we, we've got a producing asset on a path um, but just now my view is to make sure people understand who we are, what we're doing and where we're going and, and then do the proof in the pudding by announcing it. So I think we'll be able to achieve that and uh, in time make sure that value can start to return to our shareholders. Yeah, there's a sentiment component in the broad sector. And then, of course, yeah. there's the company's specific performance and, and that work. And, and I think that those set of milestones and the work that's coming up there leads us to look at this as on the back of, of course, a good cycle here, but also company-specific yeah. deliveries, which can really make shares outperform. We got a taste of that, Greg, as you know, in, in 2020, 2021, with the very good run in the shares here. Yeah. Uh, 
less than half a penny at one point and moved up to, to 11 or 12 cents. So, you know, pretty yeah. impressive move. Well, I'll give you an, uh, just an anecdote then. I did, we had a major shareholder in New York who, who I won't name, but certainly as we started to come off those highs, uh, they called me and said, what's going on? What's happening to share price? I said, look, I'm going to choose my words carefully here, but do you think realistically we should be valued higher than a uranium company that's got a fully approved mine ready to go? So I had to be honest, but careful with my words, shall we say. Anyway, um, yeah, no, we're, we're certainly looking forward to improve that value in the future. That's what we're working for. Appreciate you sharing that. Well, Greg, let's leave it there for this update. Uh, for potential investors who are listening in here, Alligator Energy has a market capitalization of about 106 million Australian dollars here. Why should the company be considered within the institutional fund, family office, and retail investors portfolio? Well, first of all, we're probably around two to three years behind our peers uh, who are valued much higher. So we're on the path to take our value forward in that time frame. Uh, probably faster because we're, we're well cashed and we've got an experienced team behind us. So I think that's 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 going to lift our value as we advance the projects and our and our business. And Greg, the best way for interested parties to contact the company? Oh, we have a, a, an info email address, uh, and my email address is on the bottom of most of our presentations. I'm happy to take uh, emails from people and make contact. Greg, always great to catch up with you. It's always a pleasure, and, and looking forward to updating again soon. All right. Pleasure. Thank you very much, Andrew. All the best.